Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 10th, 2015, and this is episode 1641 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Thursday, so that means it's a call-in show for me. Again, I'd like to I'd like to apologize for the short week this week. I mean, I guess taking Labor Day off really wasn't that big a deal. Most of you guys probably had that day off, too. Uh, but then taking the Tuesday off to deal with the pawn situation, you know, that made a three-day week. And I, I don't like leaving this show short. And the truth is, in October, the begin first week of October, I've got the October workshop here uh, at the farm. And that's going to be a very short week. That's going to be a three-day week because the Veterans Day show is pre-recorded on Wednesday. And then mid-October, I have to go out to Dick Ferguson's and teach for a week out there. So that's going to give you a very short week, a couple days, a couple shows that week. And then I got the November event coming mid-November, and and uh, well, actually that's the one that's going to have the uh, that's the one that's going to have the Veterans Day show and, and be a three-day week. So the October event, it will probably have a probably have a two-day week, two-day week show, two-show week that week. Maybe I'll try to cram another one in. What I'm going to try to do when I go to Ferguson's is do some like guerrilla podcasting again, podcasting in the truck. Uh, not put them out as official episodes, just put them out as Jack's thoughts or something like that. Uh, just raw audio, no editing. It's the only way I could possibly do that. But, you know, I'll be in the truck for five hours going out there, so I could put out, you know, a half hour a day uh, while I'm gone. I could even maybe bankroll some of the trip back doing the same thing with some thoughts and ideas and uh, put that up for you in November. So I'm going to try to bridge those gaps. Not with the f There's no way I can do official episodes in those bridges anymore like I used to. I have... Way too much production time goes into this show now. Uh, it's 10.30. I want to put some things in perspective for you guys about how the show has grown and, and, and you know what it takes to do it now versus in the beginning. By 10.30, when I started this show for the first 500, 700 episodes while I was in the car, by now the show that I've just started to record and, and, and spent all morning prepping for was done. It was already uploaded. It was already edited. It was done. It was 45 minutes of me in the car and done. I know some of you guys really like those days. And I try to keep a lot of the themes and thoughts and, and, and stuff that we talked about back then still in the show. But I also try to expand it because I want this to be the most liberating education that America can get their hands on. That, that's what I want TSP to be. The Survival Podcast is about the survival of America. And it's really about the survival of the human species. But I'm an American. This is where I live. And, and most of the people that listen are Americans. So you guys that listen from Australia and the UK and uh, Europe and all over the world, I appreciate you. And I'm doing this for you guys, too. But in the end, this is my home. You know, this is my home. And, and, and I am deeply concerned about the future of my nation. I'm deeply concerned about the future of the world. But I'm really concerned about the future of my nation. And I believe that education is the key. And not... School. Education and school are different things. So I'm trying to make this completely broad. For instance, yesterday we did a show on aquaponics. Do you know what the odds are of me putting in an aquaponics system, a true aquaponics system? About a billion to one. I, I really don't want to do that. Now, I have this new pond. 
I might put in some sort of a ponics with the pond down there because it just would make sense. It's a biofilter and it would be pretty low tech and pretty easy to do and gravity fed and it would help keep the pond clean and let me farm fish. That's what I want to do with this pond. This is not a big enough pond to just have a place to go fishing all the time. It's a, it's a pond where we'll feed catfish and we'll grow food for ourselves in the pond. And the ducks can go in there, you know, one week out of five. That, that's what that pond is designed to be. And a nice little feature in the landscape and function stacks and stuff like that. But I'm not going to do aquaponics. So why do I bring on two guys to talk to you about aquaponics? Some of you guys want to do aquaponics. I live on three acres. Some of you guys live on a third of an acre or less. It's a better system for you than what I'm doing. You can't do what I'm doing. So I'm trying to make sure that I provide this broad-scale education for you guys at no cost. That's what this show's about. And I'll tell you why. Because if we don't take control of this, we're, we're, we're all headed for the big lie of retirement. And I have a special song for you at the end of today's show about the mentality that so many Americans are in right now. And the only thing that's changed since the song was originally wrote uh, and, and sung is the number. But you'll have to wait till the end to hear it. Anyway, with that knocked out, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day and I hear... Gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us to think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at SawTac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to SawTac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains. That's why they call them SawTac. And when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com. And they also do do a discount for members of the support brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from SawTac, Get into your MSB account, click on Benefits, and look up SawTac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the sawtooth wilderness of Idaho, SawTac.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Challenging a tyrant and Guatemala's corruption problem is the first one I have for you in the year 1641. Then I have Massachusetts Body of Liberties Makes Slavery Legal. That's a very interesting one that you should read if you want to know more about the origins of slavery in America. 
uh, and, and kind of where they started and how they evolved. Because uh, I'm not going to read that one today. And I also have Ma Mount Parker erupts in the Philippines. I'm going to read the first one, Challenging a Tyrant in Guatemala's Corruption Problem, because I have a totally different take. And I love when Alex has like this great take, and I have something that's totally different about the same historical event. And Because I, I think that helps us better understand how to interpret history to realize that you can have one historical event with 20, 30, 40 messages in it for us that are relevant today. So here we go. Challenging a tyrant in Guatemala's corruption problem. Well, it's been an unpleasant year for King Charles I. He has been ruling Great Britain without a parliament for over a decade. Then last year, the bishops' war in Scotland forced the king to convene parliament to fund an army in order to bring the Scottish Presbyterians to heel. But he fails to get funding. The king convenes a longer parliament, which passes laws that limit the king's power, but doesn't fund his army. Without an army, the king must negotiate to end the bishop's war. In the meantime, the English parliament delivers the great re remonstrance to the king, a document to protect, a document of protest of the king's abuses. This document will precipitate the British Civil War and cause Oliver Cromwell to abandon his dream of joining the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He's going to be needed in England for years to come, especially after King Charles is beheaded in 1649. Cromwell will become the de facto king. My take by Alex Shrug. In September 2015... The president of Guatemala, Perez Molilla, stepped down to clear up some personal matters, in quotes, personal matters, uh, after Guatemalan Congress removed his immunity from prosecution and a warrant was issued for his arrest. After running on a campaign of honesty in government, he allegedly is heard on a recording accepting bribes from foreign companies in exchange for tax breaks, essentially selling out his country for cash. Riots in the streets forced the Guatemalan Congress to ask. As of this writing, he is sitting in jail clearing up his personal matters. Oddly, this sounds a lot like the plot for the movie No Escape in 2015, where government officials sell off public assets for cash, and an American family is trapped in public riots. No one does business with a failing government without a plan to make back the money one way or the other. Can you say Greece? Valid points. Here's my thing, though. This is what I get out of this. So the king is busy, like, just being a tyrant and just kicking everybody's ass in. But he wants to fight a war to solidify his, his, his monarchy, his, 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 you know, his empire, basically, because he's got these pesky guys in kilts up to the north just doing whatever the hell they want. We can't have that. So he says, well, we're going to go in there and kick their ass. And he says, oh, yeah, your, your, your highness, uh, we have a problem. What's the problem? I'm the king. Go kick their ass. We don't have enough money to fund a war. See, guys won't go out and get killed for free. Unless they really, 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 really believe in what they're doing. Like they're fighting for their own individual freedom. But fighting for your ability to control someone else way over there who's not bothering them, they don't want to do that unless you pay them. So the king says, shit, I don't want to do. So he calls the Congress back in, basically, Parliament. But it's what we would think of today as Congress and says, okay, guys, uh, I messed up. Uh, I've been running the country for a decade without you guys, but we need you. Uh, and one of the things I'd like to do is um, get some money so we can go kick those guys' ass up there in uh, the Scottish territories. And they say, yeah, well, before we do that, let's limit your power a little bit more so that you, you can't quite do more stuff because we're kind of tired of what you've been doing so far. And that goes through. And he says, okay, I'd like the money now, please. And they go, no. Before we spend a bunch of money, have a bunch of people die, cause more warfare with our northern brethren, why don't you go see if you can negotiate a solution here? 
And because there's no money to fight the war, negotiation takes precedence. So, if we would fund wars that way today, if the American people, instead of just having to go, America, yeah, right? If, if the American people today were told, okay, you want this war? You kick money into the kitty. Buy war bonds like World War II, right? There's no war without the funding. You got to believe this is important enough, not just to let somebody else's kid go die, not just to have a war where collateral damage in other countries means the death of innocent children. No, no, no. You have to believe it enough to reach in your pocket and pull your money out, put your money on the table, and know you're probably never getting it back. You want to do that, we'll go fight this war. Otherwise, we don't have the money for it. How many less people would be dead in the world? My take by Jack Spirico. Empires fund their warfare in the pockets of their people. And the people are sold a war. But the people don't realize the cost. Because it's money that's already been taken from them. Anyway, with that, let's... Uh, Remind you guys, if you want to support this show and the work I do, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade at $50 a year. It will pay you back many times over if you use the benefits that are there. Over 60 companies now provide discounts to members of the MSB. These are things you're probably buying anyway from the tactical to the practical, even just the cool. We have awesome display cases. We have really cool infused olive oils and vinegars. Right? We have really cool things for you to buy your wife, these you know, EcoSense. Check that one out if you've never done that. But we have seeds. We have tactical stuff. We have long-term storage food. I've got you guys discounts on so many things in there. Plus, I got you $200 worth of free ebooks you can have the day you join. Sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Consider joining it if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder. You do qualify for an additional discount. Just email me with TSPC discount in the subject line and tell me about your service in one or two sentences. Uh, and with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic today's show, which is your calls. And, and today I'm also going to say your feedback, because I got an email from someone that I want to share with you guys. And uh, I don't want to wait till Monday to do it, because this ties in way too much with what I'm going to tell you guys uh, at the end of today's show. Last week, um, I got an email from a gal named Evelyn that basically said, I've had like 10, 15 years of no real good work history. I can't find a job. Uh, I don't know what to do, and I think that she, even though when she was asking, thought maybe I'd kind of say, just get off of your ass and do it, and you know, in a much softer way, it's kind of what I said, but what I said was you need to fix yourself. You, you are damaged, and you need to understand your value, and you need to go out and do some volunteer work, and if you'll do these things, it'll lead you to opportunity. That was a week ago. That was a week ago, and I'll tell you what, this week stressful freaking week, guys. This has been a stressful week. If I was uh, terse with anybody in response to an email or a comment online somewhere, I will apologize this week and say it was a tough week. And when I have a tough week and I get something like this, it makes the day better. So here's what it uh, says. Sorry it took me a little while to respond properly. I've composed several emails from you. Keeping them short has proved a challenge. In a nutshell, you made me feel val valuable. I was hired today as a hostess at Price Cutter. Good start, lots of people to greet. 
Your your power is inside. I went through a lot of emotions listening to that podcast back on 8-31-2015. I guess it was uh, two weeks ago almost. Uh, 16-35, many times since. You shed some light on things I didn't want to see, a few things I couldn't admit. Most of them were either realistic or positive. I took a whole discussion as a positive direction. You didn't rant at me. Thank you. I have no idea how you got all that from a short little email. Part of what I wasn't letting myself see, I think, But you really do seem to have a power of insight, not just into people, but a lot of different things. We're blessed that you share that. Uh, you made me feel like I am valuable, something I haven't felt in a very long time. You showed me, uh, you showed me how to see my value. I shoo the flies out of my window frame and send them out the door. Uh, for those that didn't hear my response to Evelyn, one of the things I said in it was that, you know, trying doesn't work unless you're trying appropriately, that there's a fly at the window and he's just you know, trying with all he can to get through that window. And freedom is around the corner, out the door that's open, but he keeps trying on the window. And, and we can't be, the, we have to be smarter than the fly. Working hard doesn't mean you get results. Working hard at the right things mean you get results. So that's where that little analogy came in there. I've already joined a volunteer group, Master Gardeners, when I emailed you. I knew more about Michigan soil than I did Missouri Hard Dirt. So along with other reasons I joined, you added confirmation that would be in my best interest all the way around. Fixing Evelyn, I have to admit that I needed fixing. I lost my purpose and my passion, time to rebuild it or find it. Two reasons are, first of the past, college courses were my go-to remedy for getting over a crisis, which I didn't do this time. The Master Gardener program is structured like a class. They also provide training to become a workshop leader, structure and training as to what I thought I needed right now. They require 30 hours of volunteer work over the next year to complete the program. That seems like a very small number of hours for a whole year. Second, I've been wanting to get into permaculture, but I needed to start with something in my price range. Now, in my third week, the Master Gardener's program, I got a bonus. At least one of the instructors is into permaculture. Patting myself on the back, she presented several examples of permaculture elements and brought along a book on permaculture, she says. And she says she has the PDM and others. She hasn't taken a PDC, though, so looking forward to some really positive relationships here. Thank you. You made me feel valuable. Sincerely, Evelyn. That's what I want for everybody out there. I want you to value yourselves. Um, I know like sometimes it seems like a self-help show when I, when I get into these subjects and I want to learn how to store food. Well, okay, get the food and store it. it, it that's really pretty easy. And we've done in-depth shows that are more complex on those issues and we will again, but in the end, storing food is storing food. But wh what are you preparing for in your life? If, if you're not preparing for something positive, then, then you're really not, there's really no value in preparing for the negative. We see it, it's foolish to have one plan. And most of us in the preparedness industry, we, we look at, or the preparedness world, or the prepper community, or the survivalist community, or the modern survivalist movement, or whatever you want to call it. Most of us look at the average idiot and say, they're an idiot. And the reason we say that they're an idiot is they have one plan. Everything will be super. I'll never lose a job. There'll never be a tornado in my house. I'll never have a hurricane. No one will ever shoot me. No one will ever do anything bad to me. The economy will never fail. Nothing will ever go wrong. And we go, what a dummy. You know, and when we, when we see people like that, we rightfully say, wow, what a dummy. I mean, you know, how can you really live your life so optimistically that you don't believe anything bad can happen? Uh, to you personally or to us as a nation or to your neighborhood or that somebody might just try to, you know, harm you someday. Like, there's, there's no place in the world for that kind of, you know, idiocy. And, and we're right when we say that. And then we turn around often in this, in this community, and we live exactly the opposite. We have no plan for success. 
We have we have no plan for it. Well, what if the what if what if the duct tape holding the uh, American economy together happens to be a lot thicker and a lot stronger than we think it is? And even though it's duct tape, any redneck knows how strong duct tape can really be properly applied. And this whole thingamajob can just handle another 50 years. If you're 40, dude, you're going to be 90 when it all comes apart. Well, you know, maybe you need a plan for that, too. And where this comes back to having the right attitude and a positive attitude and being able to fix yourself is unless you do that, you can't take advantage of the ups, the downs, or the middle. You can't adapt. Because there's so many people that I believe in this industry are depressed people. And the first call is going to kind of lead us to that, even though it won't sound like it at first. And that's why I put this here at the front. Because um, the thought is, okay, well, when everything falls apart, it will be equal for everybody. Everybody will be striving to survive. And if you were smart enough to be prepared, you'll have a little bit of advantage. And because of that, you'll go from the bottom to the middle or the top. And there's, I think there's a lot of people with that fantasy in their head in the preparedness industry. And here's the truth. If you can't find the middle or the top in the good times, you sure as hell aren't going to find them in the bad times. You're not. So get out of that fantasy world and decide that like right now is what you have and start building a life and a future that's based on more than just enough. And, and for you to do that, you have to say, I'm worth it. I, I have value. I, I, I matter. What I do matters, and it matters for me, and it matters for other people, and in some way it matters for the whole world. You know, we are so small as a species, and our egos are so big, but it does matter when we grow one tree that outlives us. That one tree matters. It has an effect. It has a real, And we have no idea what effect it has. We have no idea what effect it will have. We have no idea that it may be part of some beauty that wakes somebody up moments from taking their own life. I've heard from people that have said, you know, I was going to kill myself. I, I talked to one guy. He said he went to the forest to kill himself. That he thought it would be a good place to do it. And he sat there and he thought about his whole life. And he looked around and he saw how much beauty there was. And he thought, there's got to be something. I don't know what it is, but there's got to be something worth living for. There's got to be some reason not to do this. I, before I do this, I need to figure out if, this, if there is something. And he found a new life for himself after that moment. I don't know. Could one tree do that? I don't know. Probably not. But can one tree be the start of a forest? Sure it can. You just never know what you're going to do. You never know who you're going to talk to. You never know who you're going to influence. You don't know if somebody that actually changes humanity's fate will be somebody that you made a positive contribution for. They may do it long after you're taking a dirt nap. But you have to view your, your life with that possibility in it, that you could be that important. That's not ego. Right? That's actually letting go of ego. That's letting go of narcissism. Narcissism is, I'm so important. Everybody needs me right now. Everybody should do what I say. Things would be better if... Ever. But to say that I am valuable as a being, and I'm so valuable as a being that my greatest contribution may be something I never even knew happened, that's the, that's the, 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 the counterbalance to ego. 
That's an acceptance of chaos. That's an acceptance of reality. That's an acceptance of your inability to control things. Because that also means what you do could have a very negative effect without your knowledge. So it leads to a sense of responsibility. But self-worth, guys, is the most important thing you can do to ensure your survival and the survival of those you love. Self-worth. I've said it before, but I'll close with this segment here right now saying it again. I've heard from people that say, I will die for my family. I would die for my kids. I would die for my wife. Well, how about you stand up and live for them? Because it's a hell of a lot easier to live for somebody in totality than to die for them. Because you can only die for somebody once. You can only die for somebody one time. And then guess what? They're on their own. You can never do anything for them again. So in the mechanical sense, it's far simpler and it's far easier to lay down your life for somebody. It's far more complicated, but far more beneficial to stand up and say, I'm going to live every single day with the knowledge that what I do matters and that there's other people that I can help. And those of you that tell me, I don't have anybody else, go find somebody else. Like I told Evelyn, go volunteer. I don't care if it's Habitat for Humanity or, or, or gardening or, I don't know, working at a food uh, bank. I don't care. I don't care what it is. Go do something. Find people that you can help. Because you will never value yourself enough to have true happiness and success until you find a way to realize that other people value you too. That's a two-way street. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take our first call today. Um, again, we're going to actually sort of, in a way, come back to this. Um, and you won't really see it until it happens, I think. Here we go. Hi, Jack. I uh, guess I'll call myself Joe Bob from the People's Republic of Massachusetts. Uh, I've got a quick question for you or perhaps someone on the expert council. Uh, I'm calling in reference to a group known as the Watchmen of America. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not. Um, basically, I ran into some folks who are um, developing a network of like-minded people, as you would say, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Uh, some of their members are also members of the Watchmen. And I guess what I'm wondering is a association with folks of this organization, does that paint a big red target on your back in the event that shit hits the fan or excessive rule of law? Um, any feedback, thoughts would be most appreciated. Thanks for everything you do. I've got to handle this one from two different angles. I really do, because there's the organization itself, and is it useful, valuable, something that I would recommend people be involved with? And then there's the question that's really irrelevant to this individual organization, because the question really is, if there's an organization out there that I want to be part of that stands up for something and says, uh, I'm going to take care of myself, my family, my friends, and others, and I will not back down from tyranny, should I not join it? Because if tyranny comes, I'll get my ass kicked. Um, if you have to ask that question, you're not qualified to join an organization like that. I don't think that's an endorsement of these people. because, But I'm just saying I mean, I hear this, this, there's a cowardice in this, and I, I know it's a relevant question, and I'm not putting down the individual, but there's a cowardice mindset here that we need to get away from. Because you might as well just lay down and let them have everything if you're gonna, if you're gonna think this way. Because I've heard this same question about Oath Keepers before they went off the deep end, and I said, I'm done with them. 
right? I've heard, I've heard this question about putting an NRA sticker on your car because then people will know I'm a gun rights activist and if they're, well, they'll come for my guns. Okay, listen, if you're doing anything that means jackedly shit, right, the people you're worried about already know about you, so stop worrying about it and stand because they're not afraid of you cowering. They're not afraid of you kneeling. They're afraid of you standing up. They're afraid of you standing up and saying, this is what I believe, and I'm willing to fight for it. I'm willing to protect others that will fight for it. And standing for things like the Constitution, the day that actually puts you on a list that gets you targeted in an actual way, not some think tank or the Southern Poverty Law Center puts out some crap or something, like, the day that standing for the Constitution actually results in, sir, we need to talk to you, the day that happens, we're all screwed anyway. So you better stand now so you know who you can stand with. So the idea of an organization like this is something I very much want to see happen. I'd like to see something fill the gap that Oath Keepers went out into the world of conspiracy theory and left behind. I, I really would. I would like to see something where people can nationally stand together. The rebuilding of the militia movement. The real civilian militia movement that is constitutionally based. The concept that Stuart Rhodes talked about with Oath Keepers, but never really made the effort for that. It was all about the organization, the iron law bureaucracy stepping in. Now, so I, I love the idea, and if there was such a group that I believed in their mission, I don't give a damn if it puts me on a list. I'm probably on every list anyway, and the more of us that think that way, the less lists there'll be, by the way. They, these tyrants use Fear to control you. And, and what we need to understand is the tyrant has evolved. The fear of today is very sophisticated. It's not the brutal uh, violence-based fear of, of the Nazis, right? It's not dragging people away into concentration camps. They're going to do it all, Alex Jones. It's not that, right? The tyrant of today is far more sophisticated. It's planting those little seeds. They could happen to you. You don't want it, they better be good. That's, that's what it is today. It's a prison system. They don't need a concentration camp. They got a for-profit prison system. If they really want to get rid of somebody right now, they can find a reason to put almost everybody in jail. The average American probably commits at least one federal felony a day. There's been articles about that. So if they ever want to get rid of people, there's already a mechanism for that. Now, this group, okay. <laughs> I, I, I looked into this group, and I'm going to cap, you know, put kind of a caveat here that I haven't looked deeply yet. I really haven't. But I looked around their website and thought, okay, ideas sound. And then they have radio shows. So I start listening to the radio shows. And all I can say is that everything I heard sounds like it's coming from people that have mental problems. I'm sorry. I, it's how I feel. I love the idea. People that will stand together. The whole thing is actually set up as a nonprofit co-op So you can buy things like tactical gear at a discount with group buys. Okay, nice core. Then the concept is we all look out for each other. There's multiple projects, like Project Sentinel. Wonder if they got an idea from that from us or something. I, I don't know what they have. It's a, it's a you know, perfectly valid word. I'm just saying it sounds kind of similar to something we talk about here. Just saying. And the Sentinels are the ones that report on what the government's doing, right? A lot of Jade Helm stuff. Uh, you know, it's like every single modern conspiracy theory thrown into one place and an us-and-them mentality. And to me, that's the distraction. All these things like Jade Helm, they're all the distraction. right? That's the place for the mentally ill 
to congregate and, 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 and so damage questioning authority that those of us who question authority legitimately, what what's actually going on, the controls that are already in place and the deeper controls that are being put in place, we're lumped in with those people so that no one will take us seriously. Again, the tyranny's gotten gotten more sophisticated. Instead of throwing all the disruptors into a camp, you create a camp for them to voluntarily walk into, which is a lonely bit, right? They're all coming to get us. Jade Helm was a conspiracy. They're going to have martial law. They're slowly implementing martial law. You'll slowly implement martial law. For martial law to work, it's not there. Then it's there, like a tight fist all at one time. And, and, And this group just seems like a group of people that are congregating around the concept that it's the biblical end times, the UN blue helmets are coming, uh, Obama's going to run for a third term. I mean, everything about them seems wacky. Now, again, I got this question this morning. I listened to like four different radio shows uh, by them, pieces and snippets. I'm going to say this. I could be wrong about this organization. I could be wrong. My Spirko sense is these people are freaking loony. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't people out that are part of the group that aren't good, solid patriots that believe in freedom and liberty, and since they have no other place to, to rally behind, they've chosen this. And it doesn't mean that this group doesn't do good things. It looks like they did like a supply train convoy to bring supplies in for victims of Hurricane Sandy, things like that, which is something I tried to start an organization to do, and the organization I tried to start doesn't do anything. So in some ways, maybe they've done more than, than I've been able to get done. right? So I can respect those things, but I still think these people are your typical, totally overboard, Wackadoodle. I'm sorry. They're, they're, I heard a lot of religious overtones, and you guys know me, I'm not a religious guy, but I respect your belief and I respect your religion. But I mean religious overtones in some ways, in some places, like Jesus is coming soon, he'll be here next week, that type of thing. Where even those of you that are devout believers in your faith and go, yeah, that's not me. And uh, no, no, I'm not, that's not who I am. And, and I don't think the majority of, of people of faith are, are that person, right? This is like the, the radical fringe. And, and everything's based on a perception bias. Everything that happens is an attack on their movement that's probably not big enough for it to be attacked. So if there was a group of sane, rational people Developing a network like this that I thought made sense, that were furthering the missions of individual freedom and liberty, and designed and build community that's designed to stand against the constant onslaught to our liberty right now. I mean, it's getting harder and harder to do basic human things like to grow your own food. Not because, you know, it's a conspiracy. No, because it's. It is the way society is being shaped. That's why half of people in America today live in HOAs. They have voluntarily entered on their own behalf into an agreement that prohibits all the things that they say are part of Agenda 21. You don't need Agenda 21. you got HOAs. So if there were a group of people who would stand up and say, look, it's, it's time for us to look after each other. This is not a Christians-only club. Okay, This is an everybody club. If you stand for freedom, 
If you stand for liberty, if you just stand for individual choice, if you stand for not stealing from others, if you stand against tyranny, then that's good enough. Right? That, that's what we need. Because I'm telling you, it's what the establishment fears. They don't fear the polarization between the atheist and the Christian. They, they, they fear the Christian and the atheist joining hands. They don't fear the polarization between the black person and the white person. They fear the black person and the white person joining hands. That's what they fear. They fear unity. And that's why everything in society today is designed to destroy unity under the banner of equality by removing things like pronouns. We have the University of Tennessee or some college in Tennessee wanting people to use pronouns like Z and Zim instead of she and he and her and him, so that it's gender neutral, so that everybody's comfortable. This is lunacy. And it doesn't create unity, it creates division. The Black Lives Matter movement is one of the most divisive things that ever happened in America. If, if, if you want to address the problem of excessive use of force by police departments, then you would create a movement called Our Lives Matter. Not even all. Our Lives Matter. Our Lives Matter. That would be Something for unity. So, I think the idea of a great patriot movement, good idea. But as long as it's a bunch of wackadoodles with a bunch of conspiracy theories, and it's it's done completely, again, from this like, almost like an end times cultish vibe to it, doesn't make sense. Now, again, I'm going to say again, I listened to about 20 minutes of four different radio shows and kind of looked around the website, and that was the vibe I got. I could be wrong, but I can tell you that, you know, the whole... Everything's a conspiracy thing is definitely there. So it wouldn't be for me, but I would not join a group I believed in because of fear of the government. I, I really wouldn't. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Josh in Kentucky. And uh, my question today is about uh, starting a small business with a business partner. Um, the basic situation here is I've been teaching uh, a lot of people to shoot um, just kind of you know, for free, just on the side doing my friends, uh, taking care of them as far as that regards. And I'm getting a lot of really positive feedback. I'm getting guys that have been to shooting classes that are telling me I can make money doing this. I love it. Um, and, you know, some of the reasons that about starting your own business really spoke to me in that regard. Actually, I just recently had a guy that I taught uh, who has a background in business and marketing uh, approach me wanting to partner in starting a shooting uh, school. He doesn't bring uh, any of his own shooting or instruction skills to the table, but he does bring the business marketing side, which is what I'm kind of lacking in. Uh, I've always been told, you know, by other business people, stay away from partnerships, and I am very hesitant in this case, but I guess I'm kind of excited uh, because the things that I didn't know how to handle, it seems like this guy might. So I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Um, you know, pitfalls, things to look out for, ultimately, whether you think that's a good way to go or not. Uh, just general advice. So thanks a lot, Jack. I appreciate the show. That's one of those things that's a huge, it depends. Partnerships can be the most powerful things you ever create or the biggest disasters you ever create. Partnerships can, can build businesses beyond what an individual could ever do or what any two individuals could ever do separately. Or they can actually stagnate and destroy a business because of resentment. The other party not doing what they're supposed to do results in a languishing uh, component to the business where it's like, well, 
you know, I can only do so much here, and I don't see anything happening on the other side, so I'm going to focus on other things, especially when the business is part-time. When both partners or four partners or eight partners or whatever are in the business, working the business as their primary effort, partnerships often work. Because if the business doesn't produce, everybody goes hungry. So it becomes important. The, the, the partnerships I've had bad results with were like, okay, here's what I can do. I can promote this. I can provide marketing support. I can do this. And then the other side is supposed to do everything else. And then I don't have anything to promote. I don't have enough communication. I don't have enough material. When I say I can promote it, I don't mean I can write every single thing up. I also mean when I tell you to do something, you have to do it the way I said, not totally differently than the way I said, so that I can use it to get you what I'm promising you. So, And, and that usually stems from the fact that neither side can really dedicate the effort required to make that business fly, or one's totally vested. One is living off the business, and if the business fails, they don't eat. The other one might be benefiting from the business when it's good, but if the business fails, they're not going to starve, but if something else fails, they are. And in that case, you can't serve two masters, and they gravitate toward that. The problem a lot of people say they're business and marketing guys that want to do What they mean by business is marketing, I'll build you a website, put up a Facebook page, Twitter page, optimize it if they're any good at it. Uh, and then you'll get business, and I'm your marketing guy then. Well, no. No. That's not marketing. That is a piece of marketing. If you're going to be a partner in a business where you're responsible for the marketing, business management, and sales, then you're going to be doing that shit every day. Right? You're going to build a couple of websites, throw some stuff up, put a shopping cart on a website so people can order a course online or whatever, and walk away from it and be a partner. Because... As the, the guy that's doing the training and, and things like that, then you are the one that has to actually deliver the service. All right, so this is, again, this is pure instinct. I don't know this other guy. I don't know what your relationship is with him, but it sounds to me like there's a relatively new person in your life. Hey, buddy, I can help you type thing. Um, my gut is, why don't you take the low-risk approach to see if this works first And to determine if you really need this person. Why don't you just start organizing some shoots and charge less than you would if you were doing it as a full-blown business and, and, and actually charging for your time and seeing if any of these people that say you could make some money will then show up and give you money. A lot of people say, you know, you're good at this. You should do this for a living. Really? Well, a class like this would be $199. How do you feel about that? I think it's a great value. Well, I'm going to do one next week. How about I do it for $99 for you? Well, you know, I, I, I got something going on next week. I just kind of learned from you already. You know, well, it's going to be more, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I don't have time. Wait, okay. All of a sudden you're like, okay, well, then this, this compliment doesn't survive the litmus test of financial engagement, right? And because here's another thing. Let's say you have a partner and that partner can get you business. Well, that means that he has to get you enough business that it doubles your business. For you to break even. How's that work? Okay. Let's say you started doing Saturday classes for $100 a head. Right? 
And you could get five people on your own to that class every week. Every Saturday, you do a class. You can have five students in there doing a one-day class. And maybe you start varying your classes so you're doing five or six different classes so you can build some repeat business. But it averages out that you have five students, 500 bucks a week. Not bad money, especially as a side gig. Not bad money at all. If you take on a partner, and you're talking about equal partners here, and he doubles your business to 10 Now you have $1,000 a week. Well, first you have to cover the expenses of whatever he's doing to market and advertise. But let's say he's so good, he's doing everything organically. Facebook, Twitter, whatever. You are just now going to teach a class of twice as many students for the same money. Because he gets half. He's your partner. So, if he can, he can triple that business... And now it's $1,500, and you're splitting $750 apiece. Well, now he's earning his keep. See? It's that simple. And if he can build a long-term strategy to where eventually you're adding assistant instructors, you're getting enough business to go full-time, he can, he can handle the structure, making sure that you have the right insurances and all these other things. Yeah, right? Now all of a sudden you kind of have this, this really great relationship in the business. And that is where you get the power from. But is that the goal? And is that the potential? And is that the possibility? How many other partnerships like this does the guy have? Right? What's his primary income right now? How much time is he going to dedicate to this? Because, I mean, you might be able to just go to all the gun stores and, and drop off business cards and let them know that you're available and start talking to people. Build a local discussion list. Get on next door. Next door is like Facebook for your community. Let people know that you're doing this. Tell people to get in touch with you. Set up a Facebook events page. Publish your events every time there's a new event. Put out some Twitter stuff. And you might be able to drum up enough business to get a toehold. And once you get a toehold, then you start building your network of fans. You start building your network of, you want, you know, at first, you know, it's a thousand true fans model, but in this kind of a business, a hundred people, they think you are the best trainer a person could get involved with that are out there talking to other people and are sitting in front of a husband and wife going, yeah, we wanted to get guns, but we're not sure. How to, oh, I got the guy for you right here. Give him a call. He'll set it up for you. You can do a private lesson. You can do one of his group classes. You know, once you have that network, well, How much business can one trainer really take, especially while you're still part-time? So a lot of times that partnership is better for bridging the gap, right, in this instance, right, where you would say, I've got this core. Now I can look at this partner and say, you know what, that's a great idea. Here's what we'll do. You'll give me a set of metrics, right? You're good at business? Well, I'll give you my existing revenues so you just know what they are, my existing channels, All the places I'm getting my business from. Does that sound complicated, my existing channels? Well, that means word-of-mouth referrals are 50% of my business, and 50% of my business comes from social media. social Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Okay? That's, that's all that means. So I'll tell you what I have. Well, and, and based on that, what my projections are. I seem to be getting more business or less business. See, all this stuff that you think is complicated business, if, you're, if your average class size is growing a little bit every week, then you know that you're on a growth curve. If it's flat, you know you're on a flat. And if it's on a trending down, you, know, you used to have 10 students, now you're scraping by to get five, you're on a downward trend. It's, it's not complicated. It's just complicated words to describe common sense. And then you say, okay, I'll tell you what. If you want a partnership in this business, it's called earned equity. It's called earned equity. 
either you're going to bring capital into the business and we can put a valuation on the business. This business does $100,000 a year now. It has a valuation of $100,000, right? Basic, basic valuation, right? Okay. Um, some people would say three years revenue in a business like that. Probably not. $50,000 has a $50,000 valuation on it. You want half the company bringing $25,000 worth of capital in a plan to, to do something with it. You don't want to bring in capital. Well, fine. Let's sit down and say, over the next year, here's the metrics that you agree to. Here's the time commitment you agree to. Here's the results that you're projecting. And here's milestones. And at milestone one, 90 days in, we'll vest you at 10%. All right? At milestone two, we'll vest you at 10%. At milestone three, we'll vest you at 10%. Right? And at milestone four, we'll vest you at 10%. And then... If that all works, we'll talk about the fun, you know, and you don't have to give them a half of the company then either. You can give them 20%, 30% of the company, but you can say basically earn your keep. And since you know all this business and marketing stuff, you should be able to put a plan together and bring it to me. If you decide you want to do this right from the beginning, if you think this guy's right, then make the same offer. I'll tell you what, I'll found the business. I will be a 100% owner in the business. You present to me what you're going to do to earn your equity in the business. If you don't do those things, then none of my effort is wasted. If you do those things, then we have a contract and an agreement that you vest into ownership in the business. You don't understand that? Well, then you don't understand business. Bye-bye now. Because if the guy that you're talking to either doesn't understand that, pr pr pretends not to understand that, or doesn't like that deal, you're talking to the wrong guy. Because if I'm confident that I can do what I say I can do, then I'll wait on my equity. And I'll agree to measurable milestones. And what the guy's going to say is, well, I can't guarantee you 100% result. Okay, what can you guarantee me? Or, you know, I don't know what I can guarantee you. Great. What do you think would be reasonable for you to do and succeed with before you get a piece of my company? See, understanding business isn't hard. Think about it like it's your boat. And he says, well, my job for your boat is I'm going to paint it. Great. When you're, and then we'll share ownership in it. Okay, great. When the boat's painted, we'll break out a contract and I'll give you half the boat. Very simple. Those are my thoughts. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is John from Nashville with a question about raising dogs. Uh, I was wondering if you knew how practical it was to feed a dog a diet primarily consisting of animals that I have trapped uh, myself on the property. Here's some background. Uh, first, this will be my first dog since uh, I was in, in about 20 years when I watched my father raise some fairly poorly. Um, it would reside on a farm that grows a lot of vegetables for a CSA market, and it, that attracts quite a bit of deer, groundhogs, rats, wild rabbits, and squirrels. I also... I personally plan on managing some livestock on the farm, including pastured turkeys, uh, free-range lane ducks, and pastured rabbits. My hopes would be for the dog to not only protect the livestock, but also, hopefully also chase away any vermin from the vegetable flock. I want to mitigate the costs of the extra mouth to feed by setting various traps throughout the property. Um, maybe some have a heart traps of various sizes, a turtle trap, near the pond to help save baby duckies, 
and just plain rat traps set on the trees in the wooded area to catch some squirrels. I'm thinking I could substantially provide for the dog's diet with all this trapping and save a lot on food, uh, dog food costs and hopefully even train the dog to eat the vermin that it kills on the property. Um, liking the stuff I'm seeing online about feeding dogs a raw food diet, uh, it seems to be pretty much a paleo diet for dogs. So uh, can I expect a livestock dog to thrive uh, in, with this kind of plan? Um, and also, can I expect it to protect some animals while killing and eating others? So what say you? Uh, again, this, this is John from Nashville, and uh, thanks for everything you do. Well, let, let's take this from two different standpoints. Let's say that you had enough um, trapped animals uh, and, and killed vermin to provide enough calories for a dog. Would the dog do well on that diet? The dog would do fantastic on that diet. Absolutely 100% fantastic on that diet. The key is to get the dog engaged with the concept of eating things like this. Because a lot of times dogs don't, you know, especially a well-fed dog doesn't really eat a, a vermin that it kills. Or it'll eat a piece of it. It doesn't really just chew it up and eat it. Charlie chases squirrels like crazy. Um, but if I, if I pop one out of the tree, he doesn't really eat it, right? If I, if I, if I skin it, And cook it, he wants them, right? So he's not really in that mode. So you have to work with a dog and, and, and teach them that this is, this is a, a food item. And you need to start that early. And you can start that with pups by taking, you know, like a hatchet and chopping it into smaller pieces. Don't worry. I mean, once the dog's old enough to consume whole food, don't worry about bones. People are so nuts about bones. Oh, the dog's gonna die. How do you think dogs live in the wild? Right? They crunch and they chew and they eat bones and they eat the guts and they eat the brains and the eyes and the fur and everything. Okay? And they, and they, and they, they live and they survive and they thrive. But a, a smaller pup may have trouble with that. So getting the mentality this is food into their, their minds is, 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 is paramount importance. Um, and, and at that point you can start to get to a point where a dog will get to the point where, hey, a squirrel is for eating. So you take a squirrel out of a trap and just throw it to the dog and the dog just eats it. And, you know, Nick Ferguson culls extra rabbits from his breeding with that, with his, with his uh, dogs, which are Pyrenees crossed with Anatolans, I think. He just, here, and the dog eats it. I mean, it's just instinct at that point. So the, the overall concept is valid. The idea that you're going to have sufficient calories from this activity is probably not the case. It's probably not the case. Another thing we need to understand about dogs, too, though, is dogs can eat things that will kill you. Like certain internal organisms of uh, organs raw of, of animals would give you such, you know, nasty infections of things like E. coli that you be wretchedly ill or dead. And a dog, you know, a dog is a totally different digestive system, a totally different way. So you can also look to, as you're slaughtering animals, waste product going to the dog. Um, if you're swallowing large, swallowing larger animals, you know, saving different pieces and components, but you're probably going to supplement the dog's feed. So there's a couple ways that we can look at this. One is we can downsize the dog. If we go to a breed like Basinji, which is an African hunting dog, 
uh, which is a little bit bigger than your average rat terrier or something like a rat terrier or something in that zone where you're looking at a high-energy, high-output dog, but you're looking at a dog that weighs like 30 pounds or less, their caloric requirements compared to, let's say, a 120-pound, 130-pound livestock guardian dog, very, very different. So we can get that animal by on a lot less. Okay. The caveat, that dog's not going to stand up to a coyote. It just isn't. Or especially a pair of coyotes. So is that a concern? Is that a problem where you're at? If so, then we need that bigger, tougher dog, possibly a pair of dogs. You know, I mean, a, a couple blackmouth cur or yellow cur dogs would just be outstanding patrolling a property like that. They're dogs that, that really understand kind of the, the family niche. They're a lot easier than something like a, a, a terrier or a basinji to say, hey, listen, don't eat, don't eat my baby ducks. These ducks are, these are our ducks. That little thing running around over there, go kill it, right? They, they're, 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 they're good at learning their place. And I mean, a way is to expose pups to livestock very, very early. That the livestock are part of the pack and that the things that are outside of the pack are the things to be attacked, chased off, attacked. And, and Kerr work really well for that. So the breed selection is going to be key here. You know, Pyrenees, Anatolians, a lot of other uh, you know, traditional livestock guardian dogs, they're great, but, okay, now you have a bigger uh, mouth to feed, but two curs make one of those. But two curs have a lot of an advantage, right? And there's other dogs that would be good for that. You know, you could put something on there like a Feist. Feist is a rat terrier-ish looking dog. They're murder on squirrels and rats. Um they are they're as high energy as is like your rat terriers and Jack Russells and all, but they're they're they've been bred as hunting breeds, so they're a little bit more trainable. Uh, brought in as a pup and, and and allowed to interact with livestock as a pup and trained and cautioned and, and taught, they probably do well. But again, coyote kill it. You know, so if you have the, the, the concept that the dog's gonna live outside at night and you have coyotes in the area, the dog's actually at risk. So you, you got to balance that. So I think that no matter what you do, you're going to have to feed this animal. And whether it's you know good old-fashioned dog food mixed in with this raw food diet or it's the, the, the cheapest but highest quality raw food you can source. And I mean chicken. You want, you want inexpensive food for a dog, chicken. Uh, you're probably not going to be feeding it Joel Salton quality pastured chicken, but it's better than Alpo. You know, it really is. You know, but... How you manage your, your animal is, is going to come down to how much is available. And this is most likely the case. If you're going to be doing this effective, you know, varmint control, predator trapping, things like that, then the issue you'll run into is a decline over time. So it's not, so my, my deal is if I kill something here that I don't think poses a risk to the health of my animals and they'll eat it, here you go, guys, eat it up. Eat it up. Uh, but since I haven't worked with them on it, and since I don't have the um, the volume to work with them on it consistently, a lot of things that you'd think they'd eat, they just, I don't want that. I'd have to let them get pretty hungry, I think, to kind of switch that. Um, but we, I've learned, like, when I shoot a squirrel, if I don't want to bother with skinning it and all, if I just rip it open and then give it to Charlie, then he's like, oh, there's, there's stuff in here, and he'll kind of go to town on it. But um, it, it's all in the training. But the, I don't think you're going to have enough food to provide the animal's needs 100%. But I would 
use the resource that you have for the dog. Marjorie Wildcraft, if you watch her DVD, whenever she butchers a chicken or a rabbit, all of the intestines and things like that, everything she doesn't take for her own use is fed to her dogs. So that's another source of food for the dogs. Just don't think you're going to pull it off at 100% that way. Let's go ahead and take another one. Oh, actually, one little quick addition on the bones. What I said about bones applies to raw bones. It does not apply to cooked bones. When you cook bones at high temperatures especially, the bones crystallize, and they become very um, brittle, and they break into shards. You really should not feed cooked bones to dogs, especially chicken bones, because that's where that sharp, ragged, tear the throat, cause them stomach problems, etc. problems come from. Bones that are fed to dogs should either be raw or they should be like cooked as a bone stock to the point where they bend, where they've gone past the brittle stage, or really big bones, you know, like a femur bone that's been bone stocked. It's still hard, but a dog will chew on that for days and weeks and months, and it, it, it won't hurt them. But your smaller bones that can be cracked and swallowed and whatever, they should never be cooked uh, to that, you know, where they're still hard, but they've been cooked and crystallized. It's not safe. Uh, now let's go ahead and take that other question. Hi, Jack. This is Jason from Omaha. My question is about media hosting. What is the disadvantage of sites like Blueberry.com, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, or LipSync.com, L-I-P-S-Y-N, to only host audio files? Details. I am currently designing my self-hosted WordPress site for a blog and a future podcast. I want the audio files on a separate server. I recall you stating you spend thousands of dollars per month for hosting. LipSync appears to only charge for uploads with unlimited downloads and bandwidth. $40 monthly would cost... Okay, um, you got cut off there at the end, but I get the basic question. Like, if you're going to do your own podcast, why not use Blueberry or LipSync or, or, or whatever? And, and here's the deal. For people getting started out, You're probably not going to have any problem with that, but if you have a decent hosting plan like from someone like HostGator or something like that, you're probably not either because you're not going to be drawing enough for that to happen. And, and this leads to the disadvantage. So there's always this crap about unlimited. It's unlimited. It's unlimited. Well, it's not. There's no such thing as unlimited anything when it, when it comes to uh, things like bandwidth and downloads and stuff like that because there is a limit. Any server... Uh, any pipe has a finite amount of bandwidth that can go through with it per second, per minute, per hour, per day. And the way any hosting company, and in the end, all these guys are, are hosting companies. The, the way any hosting company makes these offers is they know that the majority of people won't even ever get close to whatever numbers in their head that they think they need. They realize that if you're, you're running a podcast and you're, you're, you're doing, you know, 64 kilobits uh, compression and a couple hundred people list, listen a day and it's spread out over a day, it's not a problem. Any old server out there with 10 of those on it can just rock that all day long and not even breathe hard. And they know that. And they know that the majority of podcasts or, or any other media outlet that you're going to use have on, you know, a, a, a significantly a uh, small threshold of success. So they just say it's unlimited, and, and then some people become more and more successful. And eventually, if you become successful enough, you will wear out your welcome. Okay. 
Now, the other side of this, though, is companies like Lipson and Blueberry and companies like that, they, they also are in the podcasting business. And in the end, your content is on their server with their brand their way. Now, I know you can just dump your audio on there, and then you can pull that audio using something like the PodPress extension that I use with WordPress. And you're just basically all your sites over here and all your intensive bandwidth stuff, your audio files over here, and you're just pulling across the audio. And that works fine, but it doesn't prevent them from ever deciding, you know, uh, we're going to add some commercial content at the beginning, at the end, or during our podcasts. Even if you're paying because, oh, you crossed the threshold or we made a new rule. Um, it's, it's not a terrible idea, but I won't do it. My content's on my server because it's my content that I own. And that makes it completely and infinitely portable. If I decide to, to get a new server with another company, I can just migrate everything across. And I can flip the domain registration and boom, it's all just on a new home. It's mine. It's 100% mine. Most of these companies have some some level of their teeth or claws into your content and that's a condition on using the, their, their service. So, you know, it, 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 it was going to cost me thousands of dollars in bandwidth when I made some adjustments to the show and when my unlimited bandwidth with uh, HostGator wore out, they said, oh, your bandwidth still unlimited. It's some other bullshit they made up, you know? And it's like, listen... None of those things would be a problem if there wasn't, you know, five terabytes of data coming off the server every day. So your unlimited claim is bullshit. I understand that. I'll go find another solution. I found a company called 100terabytes.com. And my box comes with 100 terabytes of data uh, throughput a month. And, I mean, that's plenty, even for what I do. And that box cost me about 800 bucks. And I have a second box that costs me about $350 that I run everything else on. So all in all, I'm in over a grand a, a, a month for total cost of hosting for everything that I do. And that's, that's great for me. Now, what if I were you and you're just getting started out? Just, just get a HostGator account and when it's a problem, you won't care. I mean, that's what I would say. Go to HostGator, set up an account there. You know, get up their, their, their croc account or whatever, whatever the hell they call it for a hundred bucks a year or whatever, 150 bucks a year, 200 bucks a year and, and set it up. And you have great customer service there that'll help you with things. And by the time you're getting enough pull, right? By the time you're getting enough of a listenership that you, you create a problem there, you'd be able to afford higher end hosting. It's a self-correcting problem, I guess, would be the way to look at it. So, the, the the primary disadvantage of any of these these podcasting, you know, hosting services is generally, again, that number one, there's no such thing as unlimited. It's always a lie. There's always some fine print. There's always some condition. There's always some point where you're causing a burden or whatever, and you get bumped out. And two, when you use these the, these things like Lipson and Blueberry, they have some level of control of your content. It's not 100% your content. It's now your content hosted by Lipson. Where if you're using HostGator as a hosting service, it's not your ho They don't have any hook. It's just all they're doing is renting you space. So, 
That's why I would. The other thing is, so when I'm dealing with a company like HostGator, or I'm dealing with a company like 100 terabytes, I'm dealing with a company with a long track record that's not going anywhere. The, these other services have now been around long enough that I would, I would pretty much not think that they're going to go out of business tomorrow, but I just don't know. I, I just don't know. And, and I don't know that, you know, that 100 terabytes won't, won't go into some kind of problems or something, but I know that I have access to the server and I can move the content. And that's, that's of paramount importance to me. I also want a service where if there is a problem, I can call somebody and I can get it fixed. Generally, the tech support from these community-type sites is almost non-existent. So, anyway, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. I have a question about multiple fruit trees planted in the same hole. Uh, specifically, I'm concerned whether or not growth over time and the imbalance in the structure of each tree will create weakness in the actual individual plants. As background, a few years ago you had mentioned a technique, I believe it was Dave Wilson, um, who advocated the planting of multiple varieties of fruit trees in the same hole, uh, essentially taking up less overall space. So I've done that and have had, had pretty good luck so far. Um, I have several trees that are um, about four years old at this point. And as they grow, I notice that each tree is only taking up about a quarter of the space, as you would expect, having three plants or four plants in the hole. Um, my question is, will this eventually lead to damage as the trees, the, the branches in particular, are unbalanced over each individual trunk? Um, if not a problem, great. Um, if it might be, if there are any ideas as to ways that this um, you know, damage could be mitigated, I sure would appreciate your insight. Thanks a lot, Jack, for all you do. Love the show. Bye-bye. Well, the whole point is for them not to become unbalanced. And how do we make that happen? We make that happen through a variety of choices. Uh, the first is, and foremost, all backyard orcharding. Whenever we're deciding that, you know, this is a tree that should get 12, 14, 15 feet, and it will only ever get six feet tall. Or it will only ever get four feet tall. The minute we make that decision, we become responsible for that tree. Uh, far more so than basic pruning. We now are going to prune multiple times a year. We're going to prune midsummer. We're going to take off, uh, you know, half of our growth midsummer. And, uh, we're going to maintain that tree at that height. This is where, if we're not even doing four in one hole or two in one hole, we're doing one tree, but we're going to maintain this tree. So I'm going to put a tree in like an apple tree with an almost full-size rootstock that could get 18 feet tall, I'm going to maintain it at, at, you know, top at head height, six feet, as high as I can reach effectively with my pruners without a ladder, especially from the outside of the canopy reaching over, okay? It's all up to me. Now, when we add into the concept that I'm going to take four apple trees, all on, let's say, M111 rootstock, which is an it's a semi-dwarf, but it's all, it's a very aggressive large rootstock that would get into a very large tree. And, and I put them all in the same hole together, and they all start growing. Now I'm going to maintain those trees. So if I happen to have um, two varieties of apples, and one's a bit more vigorous than the other, then I need to prune that one to maintain the shape of my my quadrupedic tree here, right? So I am going to now take responsibility for pruning that tree into balance or pruning that group of trees into balance. So it's not going to get out of hand. So if the, 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 the let's just say a, a Fuji 
starts encroaching into the space that I have designated for an Arkansas black, then I'm going to prune the Fuji back. And if it continues to happen, I might more aggressively prune the Fuji to give it a little bit of a, of a back step. And I might hold off on some pruning for the Arkansas black. And I'm not saying that's how that would work out. I'm just giving you some examples. So the first thing is we're going to prune into balance. The next thing is the best choice is not to stick an apple, a pear, a plum, and a peach in a hole. It's to take four varieties of peach into one hole, or four varieties of pear into one hole, or four varieties of apple into one hole. And then the next thing that we probably want to do is try to get the rootstocks similar. So if I use... Uh, EMLA 7 rootstock for, for by one apple, I should probably use that for all of them. Now, when we're doing this pruning and maintaining this smaller form of the tree, the rootstock is not the limiting factor to the tree's growth. We are. I am the limit. I am going, thou shall come to here and no further. You will only be this big. And every time you try to get bigger, I will prune you back. I won't let you get really big and prune you back to this size because that's going to put you all cattywampus. I am going to dwarf you with pruners. Okay, So it's not so that the tree will self-dwarf. It's so that the relative vigor of the trees will be as close to uniform as possible. Now, certain species are more vigorous. And that's just the vigorous... You see, this is what I talk about the show being about education. So many things that sound complicated is just because you don't have that in your vocabulary. When we talk about vigorous, you know, in a lot of things we think of as strong and whatever. But with trees, when we say vigor in a tree or a plant, what about the, the, the rate of growth? How, how quickly does this grow into a healthy structure? And a more vigorous plant grows faster. So two apples or two pears. or We, we can do a peach, a plum, a nectarine, you know, and, and a, a, a plurie or a, an apricot. Because they're all stone fruits and they all can go on the same rootstock. And they're all very similar trees, and we can get a nice little creative little bush going on with all these different things going on. It's great. Okay, We can do that. But they also can all have that same rootstock, because a peach and a plum can go on the same rootstock, okay? because they're, they're a similar species. So if we, if we start out with the same roots for all four, then the only difference in vigor comes down to the plant and the species or the line itself. So it reduces the differential in vigor. So it makes our job a little easier. So what do you do if you put a pear, an apple, a peach, and a cherry in the same hole, and that's what you have now, and you didn't know that little piece of it there? You just prune. You just pay attention. As long as you stay on your pruning, you won't have a problem. If there's an imbalance, correct it by removing the imbalance. And that's what you have to do now is maintain this. You decide what height those trees scaffold at. And then you say, okay, if they're going to scaffold at three, I'm going to let the canopy come to five. And if they get up to five, boom, off it comes. They get a couple inches over five, middle summer, doesn't matter. Just take a little hair clip, clippings off of it. And you see that one tree put out a branch and it starts to grow through the other tree's space, remove it. Get it out of there. I don't care what time of year it is, remove it. You're not going to remove 80% of the tree's vegetation. You're just going to take that piece off. You're just going to take that piece off. That's going to slow it down a bit. That's it. That's all there is to it. And it's a fantastic way 
to put a huge variety of fruit in a small space. It really is. And I like it much better than a multigraph tree. Because a multigraph tree, you have to do the same thing. But you end up with a competition on the same trunk structure. So it's a lot more complicated to balance than it is just putting everybody's got their own roots, everybody's roots are the same, everybody's in the same hole, everybody's maintained the same way. About the only variable you can't control there is somebody's going to be more toward the south and get less sun. And we can even maintain that by pruning. If we, if we prune properly, where there's enough airflow through the branches, there's plenty of sunlight for everybody. You know, we can prune the front a little shorter than the back. You know, maybe we give our two, you know, we give our, 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 our southwest and southeast trees a, a, a four inch advantage for part of the year. So they get a little bit more of that sunlight up top. We can do that. And then we can kind of even them out at the end of the season. And then we do our fall pruning where we shape everything the way we want it for our next outgrowth. Real simple. Um, sounds like you're doing a great job. Or you, you wouldn't be saying, what if? You'd be saying, what do I do now that? So you're probably doing fine. But stick with Dave Wilson Nursery is the, is the place to learn more about this. He does a fantastic job of explaining things with videos and all. Uh, Dave Wilson Nursery, again, I'll put a link in the show notes for you guys. Hey, Jack, this is Robert in Oklahoma. Got a question directly related to the thing you did last week on small businesses. Question is, how do you get practice in selling if selling isn't part of your existing skill set and isn't part of the job description that you already do? And also, you're one of those people that need some serious skill development in this area to or before you launch your own business. That's something I, re I really was having a bit of question about on there, and I'm from What I'm seeing, it's one of the major stumbling blocks to me really being able to move forward with a couple of the, to the next stage and working on some business stuff for the pro, working business things on there for getting my own business started. Okay, so how to sell is a very complicated question, and it's a very simple question at the same time. The problem with just giving you the simple answer, which is pretty much what I'm going to do, is that there's still a, 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 there's a volume of technique out there. So it's almost like asking a question like, you know, how do I um, defend myself with a martial art? I can simplify it and say, well, take up 9mm jitsu, which is get a 9mm and shoot somebody if they attack you. Um, or I can get into, you know, here's different martial arts and their options and their things and there's some techniques and what have you and here's some schools you can go to. You can go into the MMA world. You can go into the multiple discipline world. You can go into strength and conditioning. There's all different ways that you can <clears throat> become a better fighter or a, have a better sense of how to fight if you have to for self-defense. But in the end, there's so many avenues and, and none of them are really wrong. It's just what works best for you. And that's a little bit like how sales is. But to me, and maybe I should do a whole show on sales. I, I don't know. If the interest is there, maybe I'll do it. Maybe I should do a course on sales. I think it's one of the fundamental skill sets lacking in America today. Um, but the reality is I can define sales with three words. And if you use that three-word definition you can almost become a master salesman overnight as long as you believe in what you're selling because the, the definition is transfer of belief. And if we extrapolate that a little further, there's two processes involved with getting people to engage with you or your company and become a customer. There's marketing and sales. Not marketing and sales is a phrase. Marketing, full stop, 
and full stop sales. Two different things, like black and white, like heavy and light, okay, right? Like like green and brown, not green and brown. Green is one thing, brown's another thing. Marketing and sales. So marketing then is the exposure to a belief. Okay, and a good salesman understands there's a process for selling, and at least a little piece of the marketing ends up being on him. If the sale is taken from cold to warm to closed by a salesperson, the, the, the salesman's doing at least some marketing because there's an initial engagement. So that's, that's a cold call, what we would call in the sales lingo. So that's, you're not really looking for anything right now. And I go out and I engage you. I call you on the phone. I knock on your door. I meet you on the subway, whatever. And I engage you and I expose you to a belief. My widget is super. And if I do that in a way that actually makes you think, well, maybe his widget is super, then we go into a warm phase of selling, which means there's now an active and agreed upon conversation happening. And then there's a close. The secret to being a great salesman is to come in at a point where the marketing is such that all you have to do is transfer the belief and close. And then you don't even have to close. The customer will close themselves. So another way to look at this is create, agitate, solve, help. Okay, That's, a, that's an old school sales formula. Create a problem, agitate a problem, solve the problem, help the customer institute the solution. Okay. If we can get the customer creating their own problem, agitating their own problem, and coming us just for a solution, we only execute half of the formula. Sound complicated? Well, here's how uncomplicated it is. It, it, by the way, create, agitate, solve, help. C-A-S-H, cash, right? That's why it's a quirky little thing. And so if you do that, you'll have cash because you'll close lots of deals. Um, so my niece, when she was about four years old, was going to grandma's one day. So what my niece likes to do is go out and shop, like many young girls do. Uh, so she wants to go out to the dollar store and get like makeup and stuff like that to 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 play, you know, dress up at grandma's house. So the problem is that she has a lot of this stuff and she wants new stuff. So the first thing she does is take her little purse and empty it. So she takes the purse to grandma with nothing in it on purpose. She has created a problem. There's nothing there. Then she says, "Grandma, look at my purse. It's empty. There's nothing here to play dress up with." I like to play dress up, and so do you. Why, why don't well, you know? What are we going to do about this? Right? Agitation. Create the problem. Agitate the problem. We could go to the dollar store, get some stuff, solve the problem. A little bit of a push. She helps Grandma make the decision to go, and Grandma was toast from the beginning. Grandma was going to cave. Grandma was going to take her to the dollar store, to buy stuff. She probably would have took her without creating the problem, but it certainly helped. Now, a lot of people would get on a kid for that level of, you would call it manipulation, but that was the perfect execution of a, of a sales formula taught by high-dollar teachers at sales workshops. By a four-year-old or a five-year-old, somewhere in that range at the time she did this, no one taught her how to do that. She did it intrinsically. So what am I trying to get up? We all know how to sell. We all know how to sell, and if we can, so now let's take that into a car sales arrangement. So we have to create a problem, agitate a problem, solve a problem, and then help the customer implement the solution. So generally for a car salesman, a lot of times this has already been done. I'm unhappy with my old car. I think I owe too much money on it to get rid of it. Since I bought the car in the first place, I've created the problem. 
Now, I've driven this car longer than I wanted to. I really want to get rid of it. That's why I'm looking at cars on the thing. So there's a lot of agitation already done. So the, the good car salesman is not going to focus on telling me why this car is the greatest thing in the world. I'm already looking at it. I'm already interested. Maybe I want a different car. He doesn't know yet. But he wants to know why am I here. Right? And if I tell him my story, he goes, oh, so you, you don't think you can get out from under your existing car loan. No, I don't. Well, how much do you owe on it? What is it? Maybe there's something here we can work that out for you with. I don't know. He's already in help. He's already in help, right? You've done the create and the agitate yourself. Now, I don't really like the car sales business, but it's a good example of that. So, if you set your marketing up right, what you have, pe what you have is people that have created their own problem, and a problem's not always a negative. It's I'm looking for something that does something that I don't have. Right? I, I'm looking for a great tree to plant in my backyard. Right? They've, but they've created, see, creation doesn't necessarily mean that I actually go and break your stuff to create the problem. It just means that I've exposed it. And so if you've exposed it for yourself, and then I've thought on it long enough to go, I really want this. Now I've agitated it myself. So I go into search mode, and if I find your marketing, all you have to do is help me choose. Uh, solve my problem and help me choose. Now, if you put the right marketing out there, The solution presents itself. I go to your website. <laughs> there it is. There's a buy button. My site sells for me. So my caveat there is, how much selling do you need to do? What are you going to sell? Now, there's multiple ways to look at sales as a skill. There's a life skill. There's a professional skill. And then there's a self-employment skill. And those are three different places to look at it. And there's different values to it. You know how to sell already. You ever got a date, you close the deal, you got a sale. Right? Have you ever been a leader in a group or even part of a group and they're looking for a solution and you say, hey, we should do this, this, and this because of this, that, and the other. And everybody goes, that's a good idea. Tom's right. We should do that. Okay, fine. Then you've just sold an idea. Right? And you got to look at sales, too, with cycles. So sales cycles come down to things like how long does it take for a decision to be made based on the consequences of the decision. There's long sales cycles, and there's very short ones. When I was in the cabling industry, and a guy phoned up and said, I need three cables put in, I said, small jobs like that, we do it for $150 a cable. He said, okay, send some guys out. And as long as what he described is the way it is when they get there, and it's a basic cable run, That's, it's a small amount of money. You need it done. Short sales cycle. If we take that into dealing with the opposite sex, that's walking to somebody up at a dance club, right, and saying, would you like to dance? It's a very short sales cycle. Doesn't always go your way, but there's a basic presentation. I'm here. I'd like to dance with you, the way you speak, the way you look, how you approach, right? And it's an easy decision. There's no big consequence to dancing with somebody at a dance club. You don't like them, you don't do it again. Thank you, goodbye now, right? So that's a very short sales cycle. If you say, would you like to go on a date? Well, now we're going to spend a few hours together. It might be a little more of a midterm sales cycle. You might have to get to know somebody a little bit better before you convince them to go on a date with you. They might not just, you can't just walk up. I mean, some people do it, I guess, you know. But in general, you don't just walk up to some random stranger on the street and go, hey, would, would you like to go out on a date? You might start with, hi, my name is Tom. What's yours? Do you come here often? Whatever. However you would do that when you were in that mode. 
And if there's any level of chemistry, then you might propose that. If there's, and it depends on how. So this is like sales too, right? So how quickly are you going to move into that process? If you've met somebody that you're really taken by in a grocery store that you've never seen before, you may never see again, you might ask for a number further along the process. Or you might say, hey, I'm going somewhere next week. Would you like to go? That might be far quicker than you normally would, but you're doing it because you know, I have to take this opportunity. That's how sales work. There's times where you would take a little longer in the process, but since the opportunity is there, if you do not get a possibility for further engagement, then you're going to lose it. So you move along a little quicker. Otherwise, if you're dealing with someone that you know you're going to come into contact with multiple times, you might have a few more discussions before you ask for the date. So you ask for the date. Now, getting someone to marry you, much longer sales cycle. But that means that you know how to sell all the cycles. You know short duration, mid duration, long duration sales cycles. You're already a salesman. You have to uncover that for yourself. Now, exactly how to learn more about it, it, it really is going to come down to this. I, I think I will do a show on selling because I'm 10 minutes into this one. And it's, it's a very difficult thing to say, go here or read this. I'll tell you there are some great books. Um, selling the Invisible is a great book. If you can sell the invisible, you can sell the physical. Selling the invisible is like selling stocks or bonds or selling uh, life insurance policies or things. People don't actually get a deliverable. You know, they get a policy, but it's not. It's not like buying a car or a, a smartphone that you're going to use. And if you could do that, you could probably sell anything. But I mean, the big thing is just accept that you do know how to sell. And, and instead of worrying about how do I sell, think about what business do you want. And what does a sales process and a marketing process for that business look like? Hopefully that's helpful. If you're interested in me doing a whole episode on how to sell as a skill, because this is like how to get a promotion is selling, okay? How to get a date is selling. How to get a job is selling. It's all selling. And we've convinced people that selling is evil, it's deceptive, it's trickery. Those that, No, evil is evil, trickery is trickery, and deception is deception. Sales is sales. It's not one of those things. You can use those things to sell, you know, maliciously, but it doesn't mean that's what selling is. Selling is simply the transfer of belief from one individual, this is a good product that will help you, to another individual that says, now I believe that, I would like to buy it. And then helping the person complete the purchase. Figure out how that fits into your business. Because, you know, how much selling do we do to sell our duck eggs? None. The site is set up. The site's up. People call and go, can I buy some, please? And my wife goes, sure, I can put you on a list. You can get some next week. And the deal is done. And the deal is done. So it all depends. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, it's Shane from Grayson County, Texas. Got a quick question for you. Little thing to do, kind of a uh, permaculture orchard style ending uh, this fall. We're going to put in some swells as well. And want to know your recommendations for uh, cover crop, I know you talked about it again in the past, and also uh, blackberries. I know you put in a couple hundred blackberries and said you got them pretty cheap. I was wondering if you could help maybe me source some cheap blackberries. Thanks. One of those questions that sounds really simple that's actually complex. So let's start out with the, the easy one, the blackberries. The best way I know to get inexpensive plants is to check out sites like eBay and, and Craigslist. And look for backyard orchards, is, you know, or backyard nurserymen that that you know do larger volumes. 
uh, which is which is how I found uh, most of the inexpensive plants that I planted, and certainly how I found it, some of the blackberries that I uh, either planted or still have on site and haven't put in the ground yet. But that's the easy way. Uh, last year, I think I bought. I ended up giving them to a client, but I bought fifty pecan seedlings for thirty dollars, and they were perfectly good seedlings. I mean, so that's a big thing right there. And then realize that things like blackberries propagate from division really easily and can be layered really easily, and there's a lot of self-propagation you can do with that. Anyway, so let's get on to the other thing, cover cropping. So I think one of the biggest problems we have with cover cropping is a lot of times a person asking the question doesn't actually want a cover crop. They want to establish a pasture. Those are two different things. This person wants a cover crop. I'm going to put in a swale. That means I'm going to create a disturbance. Remember, whenever we look at the ground and we see dirt or soil, there's been a disturbance. It may be a very old disturbance that hasn't recovered, but it has been a disturbance. It is not a natural state for the dirt to show. There should be something there. So there's been a disturbance. And if it's compacted, there's been a disturbance. If it's too loose, there's been a disturbance. And when we put in a swale, we expose dirt and we decompact it and we create a disturbance. The problem with that is, unless we do something to put a skin back on it, to heal the disturbance, we can get things like erosion problems, and we can get excessive compaction. So we've just taken this piece of equipment, whether it's a plow, whether it's an excavator, a dozer, and we've pushed this nice pile of dirt, and we've broken it up. Even if it's got some pieces of compaction, it's got a lot of looseness going on in it where roots can get down into and establish themselves and further structure the soil and build it into something beautiful and we can plant trees into it, yay! Okay, But if we just leave it there, it'll start to settle. When it rains, it'll do exactly what it's supposed to do. Water will hydrate into the swale and suck up into the berm and the berm will get wet and become mud and become heavy and what does it do? It flattens out. So we want to stop that from happening and we want to develop roots into the, the earth that will allow the growth of more stuff and create structure and begin the process of, of building fertility in this now disturbed soil. And that is what a cover crop's for. A cover crop is not, I got this field and there's a big bear spot in it and I want it to turn into something I can graze my chickens on. That is pasture establishment. That means we need to success into perennials. Doesn't mean we won't do the same thing with a swale bank, but I just want to kind of point that out here because I get this question all the time. You know, I need a cover crop. But when you when you dig into what the person's asking about, it's not a cover, cover crop application. A cover crop is I'm covering a disturbance. I've harvested my garden at the end of the year, and instead of just leaving it fallow, I'm going to put down winter pea and, and uh, wheat, and I'm going to turn it in in spring and plant a new garden. That's a cover crop. I'm covering it for a time. All right. So with that in mind... This is so dependent on where you are, whether or not you can irrigate, what your natural rain cycles are, and what time of year it is. But my favorite go-tos in hot weather, red cow pea, and buckwheat. In winter, vetch, winter pea, and any kind of wheat or annual grass. So wheat, rye, triticale, which is a hybrid between uh, wheat and rye that won't reproduce and reseed itself, um, plain old annual ryegrass. 
And I really like daikon either in the spring or the fall. It probably just won't even germinate for you in midsummer in much of the country, certainly not in Texas. But it will hold in the summer if you get it established in spring. But in the winter, it's great. And right now it's winter. So right now I'd be looking at something like a grass of some sort, um, winter pea, so like Austrian winter pea, um, daikon radish, and um, a vetch, whether it's a purple vetch or hairy vetch or whatever. They're very cold weather tolerant. They'll go late in the year before. The, you know, some of them will frost kill. Some of it won't. You know, down here in Texas, you plant wheat or rye, and it won't even frost kill. It'll go right through. And then that, that wheat or rye is going to put huge roots in there. And because it's an annual grass, it does have a season, and it can last longer if it's cut. So if we cut it in the spring, it'll last way into the spring before it basically summer kills and either puts on heads and, and, and finishes its life cycle Or just gives out. So then we're that's that's getting us through the winter with a covered berm. So it's not exposed dirt, compacted, cold, exposed to heart condition, harsh conditions. It's a big furry green thing going through through our land. As we come into next year, we either need to be putting a summer crop on, which again, buckwheat and cowpea really really hard to beat is your base. So I like to be sowing things in there that are. Designed for more of the long-term ground cover layer, so the cover crop is 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 like a band-aid, and your perennial ground covers are more of your your new permanent skin. All right, so like it's like I'm going to put down you know this this new permanent skin. I'm going to put a bandage over it to hold it in place of the graft takes. Think about it that way. So the things I like to use for that perennial succession, plantain, chicory. Those are two of my all-time favorites. Clover of any and all sorts. In Texas, we have a lot of alkalinity. So any alfalfas or medics, like uh, sal, uh, sal, sal, snail medic, I think is what it's called. Um, any of those things. Tonic plantain is a great one. Grouse chicory. Anything that has that ability to either be a, a, a perennial Or a biannual, like your chicories are biannuals, and that means they'll grow a little plant the first year, great big tall stalks the second year, big flowers on them, and then they die in the end of the second year. But they produce a whole buttload of seed, and they self-reseed. Cowpea will definitely self-reseed for you in Texas. It does for me, without doing anything. You know, So th those are kind of where I would go with that, and there's no right answer to that question. It's always about timing, what's available, what your budget is, how much. Um, I throw just tons of shit down, to be honest with you. The only thing I really look at is, will this grow in this season or the next one coming? Because I will put down things that are more cold-weather plants right now in September here in Texas with still 90 degrees out, because I know the seed can make it that long. It can make it till October, and it'll come up when it wants to. So I'll just throw everything I can get my hands on. I don't really care. I want something to grow. If I get anything to grow, I'll build a layer. That layer will become a nutrient and seed trap, and nature will success something in there. If I'm doing swales, I'm putting trees and bushes in, and I'm not really worried about anything truly competing with them but other trees and bushes. So I almost don't care what grows on the ground layer unless I'm specifically trying to cultivate something down there. If I'm in a nice shady spot with good moisture, I might hit the hell out of that with mint. Right? I can get mint on there. I can keep it covered. The big thing is to keep it covered. And it's this thing I struggle with. 
I struggle with my swells on this property, the way things are laid out, uh, with keeping them covered. And we're going to be doing some things this year to, to really further that. Long lots of planting over 200 locust trees. I only put 50 over there this spring. We're going to put 200 in at least. And almost none of them in the berms. We're all going to go on the backside of the swales to shade the backside of the swales, keep the sun from beating on that stuff so I can get more to grow there. So it's not always easy. And it has a lot to do with your soil types. Uh, but again, my big concern is will it grow? Mustard, fine. I don't care. It'll grow right now. You know, it'll grow through the winter. Millet. I threw a bunch on the dam where we exposed everything on the dam. We put the, the pond in. I put a bunch of millet over there. That millet will not make it through the first heavy frost. I don't care. There's a bunch of other stuff there with it. Uh, I put less less Z out. I mean, there's you name it. If it'll grow and it ain't going to interfere with what I'm trying to do, I'll plant it. All right. So what I want to do is I want to finish up today um, with something another different song. And I, I kind of want to do a little bit more setup for it than I, I, I typically do. Um, because this one I think is really important. It gets to the heart of what I was talking about at the beginning of today's show. And, and the importance of realizing what we're really trying to do here, developing our skills, developing our education, and developing our self-worth. Because to me, this song's very sad. A very, very sad song. And I wouldn't put it at the end of the show unless I was saying, Something like I'm going to do today, which is this is your alternative to this. You don't want this for yourself. This is a song by a guy named Mel McDaniel. Mel McDaniel. I mean, they were dusting some stuff off now. This is old country. And the song is called Come On 65. Come On 65. And you might think it's the year. And it's the year. It's not the year like 1965 or 2065. It's the year that he's going to turn 65 because then he can retire retire, get that good government money from that Social Security, which actually did a lot more for you in 1965 than it does today, even though the number was significantly smaller. But it's the whole concept that my life will be better after I retire, that things will be much better after my, then I can do my living, then I can I can rent that motor home and drive around and, and what have you. And I want you to understand something. The concept of retirement is the carrot for your enslavement. This might sound a little crazy, but give me a minute. I'll, I'll, I'll make it make sense for you, I promise you. And it's important you understand this stuff. If you found yourself a couple thousand years in the past and were you know, dealing with some average people that were just living average lives, doing average things... Maintaining their little piece of property or whatever, grazing goats as nomads or whatever it was they were doing. And you talked to them and tried to explain the word retirement. And assuming you could speak their language, but the only, the only word that you didn't have a word for it was retirement. You were trying to explain retirement to them. You'd have yourself a really hard time explaining it. They would either think it meant the point at which an animal or a person literally can't do anything useful anymore or they die. They want to understand the concept of, so there's going to be this point in your life where you're not going to do anything anymore and you're going to have money and you're going to have stuff provided to you and then you can just enjoy yourself. Because they're going to say to themselves, well, first of all, don't you enjoy yourself now? You know, assuming they're not on the edge of death from the plague or something like that, you know, don't you enjoy yourself now? Because the, 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 the historical life of humanity outside of warfare and, and disease and death like when there wasn't a horrible crisis going on, it was pretty relaxed. 
And community was extremely important. And social engagement was extreme. Music and dance are as old as humankind. Entertainment. The concept that you'll go for a walk in the woods to relax, I'm sure they did, but they didn't think of it that way because you walked in the woods. It was something you did. It was nice. What happened is this society evolved, and we got into the Industrial Revolution. To maintain power, those in control had to move from a throne to a business chair and had to realize, like, to continue the growth and control, we need a lot of people acting as batteries, acting as machines, doing the work. They had to create a structure. Now, to us, a good job with benefits sounds like a great thing. Well, that's because we've had a couple thousand years of marketing to us, and specifically 500 years of really good marketing to us, that that's what you're looking for. And we've really had 250. The last 200, 250 years is where this concept was sold to people. You want a place to go work. You want somebody to pay you. You want a steady income. Then you can have a nice house. You can live in it. And if you do that, you will have all the things you need. Well, along the way, people started to snap to this and say, hey, wait a minute. Didn't we, used to, we had it better when we were just, you know, living on the farm or whatever. This is, I don't, I got to show up every day. Somebody tells me what to do. And, and, and you end up with a labor movement and unions and guilds and all kinds of things like that. <clears throat> and it, it's the worker demanding rights and, and, and the employer eventually going, well, do some of these things. And the ultimate carrot was, okay, well, at a certain age, you'll get a pension or a retirement, and you won't have to work anymore. And then you can spend the rest of your life not working and still having some money and having everything you need. So now that's what you're working for. It, it sounds good until you start thinking about, well, why would we do that? Well, number one, we do it because people's ability to work as we think of it declines over time. So they become no longer useful in employment. Therefore, it becomes the responsibility of society and the employer to see their needs in return for the contribution of their life that they've made. Let me tell you something. Society and your employer can never pay you back for 50 years of your life. It's a debt that cannot be repaid. It is an illusion that it gets repaid with retirement. And you might die before you collect even one-tenth of the 1% of the debt they're going to give you back. Your life's worth way more than that. And the reason we had to create that illusion that it wasn't is I want you to take yourself again back in time. Imagine a time where you didn't have a job. You didn't work for a living. And no one did. And some fool comes walking across the field one day, comes to the middle of your village and says, I got a great idea. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put some big old buildings over there. And you guys go, well, I don't know if we're going to, but we know how to do that. When somebody needs a house, we put up buildings now. When we need a church or a community center or whatever, we all pitch in and get it. So we can build your building, sir. What are you, what are you proposing? Well, we're going to, inside that building, we're going to start making stuff. Oh, well, what are we going to make? We're going to make wheels for wagons. Hey, whoa, hold, hold on. Fred here and Tom here are wagon wheel makers in the community. This town doesn't never need a wagon wheel, ever. In fact, the one town over, once in a while, they need a wheel. They come down here, we give them a wheel. And, and if we need something, you know, they hook us up. They, it's a gifting society. That's how these original interactions were. It wasn't barter. It was an unbalanced equation. The, the, see, with money, it balances. You get an evening out. I give you $5 worth of stuff, you give me $5, we go away and never see each other again. 
there was a sense of gratitude that could never be fully paid back. That's how communities were bound together with this. And you say, well, well what we're going to do is we're going to put in a factory and we're going to make 10,000 of these wagon wheels a month instead of 10. And you go, what the hell would we ever do with 10,000 wagon wheels? So, well, there's towns like that one over there that doesn't have a good wagon wheel maker all over the place. They're just too far away for you to get to. But we've figured out the transportation thing now. So you're going to make wagon wheels, and we're going to take them to these other places. And what do you, okay, well, what are you going to do with them? We're going to sell them. You're going to sell them for what? Money. And by now we've evolved, we understand money. There's some money for commerce existing in our town. And we go, you're going to sell them for money. Well, how much money do we get? Oh, we're going to pay you by the hour, and we keep the profit. Okay. And, and, and how does this work? Well, you show up when the sun comes up. And then, you know when the sun goes down? You go home. Okay. And what about all the other stuff that needs to get done? Well, not everybody's going to work in the wagon wheel factory. So then you can hire somebody to do stuff like look after your home or, you know, we'll call those guys police or to, to, to teach your kids. We'll call those teachers. We'll put a building in where somebody can go there and work from you know sun up to sundown and teach your kids all the things they need to know. Well, I'm teaching them all that. Well, you can't do that anymore. You're going to be in this factory making wagon wheels. Well, who's going to make the wagons? Glad you asked. We'll put another factory in over here that makes wagons. Well, why don't we put the wagon wheel factory and the wagon in one place? We'll do that eventually, but right now we're going to build two different enterprises. Well, why are we going to do that? So that more of you can have these wonderful jobs. Well, who the hell is going to stay home? Well, the women could stay home in the beginning. But later on, in, 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 in the, the interest of equal rights, eventually it will evolve into something where women go to work too. Well, who's going to take care of the kids? Well, some of the women and even some of the men will go to places before they're old enough to really learn. We'll call those daycare, and they can stay there. And those people will be paid so that they can afford all the things they need. And you'll make wagon wheels, and this guy will make wagons, and some factory will make wagon wheels and wagons together. And anything else we can ever think of to build a building that you'll go to, we'll do that until everybody has a job. It'll become a goal that there's no one that doesn't have a job like that. That everybody's employed. You're either employed or you own one of these things. What do you think? I think the guy would be hanging from an oak tree. If he was that honest about it. Like five minutes later, like one fist movement of the sun, because there was no time in, in the you know clocks. He'd be dangling by a grapevine around his neck from an oak tree, and we're not going to discuss this any further. Why? You're asking a people with full liberation, with joy, with happiness, with social engagement, where everybody's got everything worked out, to willingly commit to partial slavery on a daily basis and to give up so much of what they had in return for promised stability that if you ever take away their slavery, fire them or lay them off, they become in desperation of losing that which they still have their home, which they never needed you to create in the first place. So we got to put a carrot in front of the donkey 
that he'll just keep walking for him. We got to keep him just hungry enough that he still wants it. We got to feed him enough that he doesn't fall over, and we'll put it just out of reach. And when he can't pull the card anymore, we'll give him the carrot, and he'll find out it was never all it was cracked up to be. Yeehaw, that is you. That is me. That is society as a whole. That is what we've been led to believe. That employment in its conventional form, a set number of hours a day every day under complete and total control, being watched out over by authority, having someone else raise your kids, and trading 30, 40, 50 years of your life in return for living the end of it with a stipend, small amount of money compared to what you made during the time, and if you're smart and you save enough of your slave wages... You can have even more. And that last 20 years can be the golden years of your life if you don't die of cancer, if you don't get hit by a bus, if you don't... Don't wait for 65. I don't care if you're 85, 75, 25. Live your life to its fullest now. Don't be like Mel McDaniel in this song saying, Come on, 65. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if, time get, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Somewhere on the Osage River, there's an old cane pole that waits for me patiently. And this city job might drag me down, but one fine day I'm going to be cut free. Just wait and see. And I'm gonna go down where the waters touch the sky Where all the old men's laughter echoes like a lullaby Sixty-five, come on, sixty-five It's a sin to wish my life away, but I can't wait till I'm Sixty-five, come on, sixty-five There's a gold watch if I get out alive at 65. Now somewhere in my memories I recall a boy of 17 full of dreams. Dreams that lie just stripped away a year at a time and now what's left ain't hardly me. But I've saved up a little here and there to get me by Enough to mend these ragged wings and once again I'll fly at 65, come on 65 It's a sin to wish my life away but I can't wait till I'm 65, come on 65 Or the object The game is to survive past 65 I've heard it said that hard work never did a grown man's body any harm Well, they were wrong All these years of lifting things I should have left alone to their toll But my will is strong And the day that I walk out of here I'll hold my head up high 
I'll pawn that stupid watch and just kiss 30 years goodbye. 65, come on, 65. It's a sin to wish my life away, but I can't wait till I'm 65, come on, 65. There's a gold watch if I get out of line at 65. 65, come on, 65. Send to wish my life away, but I can't wait till I'm 65. Come on, 65. Lord, the object of the game is to survive at 65. Now, somewhere on the Osage River, there's an old cane pole that waits for me. Patiently.